God, we thank you so much for this morning. God, we get to look at your word together as a church family. Lord, we don't take that for granted, and Lord, we come to you in need, or we want you to speak to us. God, we thank you for what you have shown us this summer as we have looked at different attributes and characteristics of who you are. And God, I pray this morning and throughout this new sermon series in August, God, I pray that you would show us what it means to relate to you. God, what our disposition should be towards the God of the universe. And so, Lord, would you speak to us this morning through this passage, I pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you see something, say something. It's exactly what you'll see on signs everywhere in and around the New York City subway stations. These signs are part of a PR campaign meant to encourage citizens all around New York City to be on the lookout for potential terrorists. This campaign is meant to equip the people of New York City uh, to handle potential terrorists, that if they see something suspicious, they are to notify the authorities. Well, since the inception of this campaign, there's only been one problem. It doesn't work. They actually have not caught a single terrorist as a result of this uh, campaign. The reason for this is because there's just too much weird stuff going on in and around New York City. If you've been to New York City, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's all kinds of suspicious behavior and eccentric uh, behavior going around uh, with the people of New York City. All around New York City subways are people who seem out of place. They seem suspicious, but they're not. They're just part of the beautiful and eclectic and somewhat bizarre uh, group of people that make New York their home. So the problem is, is that people don't know what qualifies as suspicious. Problem is, is that they don't know what normal is supposed to look like. Now that's not only true in New York City, but that's also true in many circles within Christianity about what the normal experience is supposed to be like within the Christian life. And for many, there is confusion, maybe even opposition, about what the normal experience should be like within the Christian life. So this morning, we're uh, kicking off a new sermon series about desperation, being desperate for God, being hungry for God. And one of the things that I want us to see throughout this month is that being desperate for God is not just something that we experience when we go through trials and difficulties, but being desperate for God should be the normal experience in the Christian life. See, part of our problem is that we tend to be so comfortable, we're so skilled, we're so intelligent that sometimes we live our lives as if we don't need God. We kind of go about our lives sometimes as if we think that we are in control. That we sometimes live like deists, where we believe God is real, but we don't really live like we need God outside of heaven. But then difficulty comes. The bottom drops out from underneath us, and we see our need for him. That's when we pray like we mean it. That's when we become desperate as we should. But the question that I want to just confront us with throughout this sermon series is this is did we not desperately need God all along? Doesn't pain and sorrow just unmask the thin ice that's underneath our feet, but 
It's been there the whole time. That pain and sorrow have a way of making us aware of what's been true all along, but just been hidden and suppressed, that we are far more needy for God than we care to admit. And so the purpose of this sermon series is to help us see that that desperation clarifies what is true about ourselves and about our need for God's help. That desperation is is somewhat of of an open door into a season of intense growth. That desperation is is a conduit for God's power and God's presence coming into our lives. And so rather than resisting or maybe even tolerating desperation, I want us to learn how to cultivate desperation in our lives. I want us to embrace the gift of desperation, of coming to the end of ourselves and seeing that it's actually part of the normal experience within the Christian life. And so this morning, we're gonna uh, just kind of take a step back and look at just the big picture of what it means to be desperate for God here in Genesis chapter 32. Over the next couple of weeks, we'll take a deeper dive into the specifics of desperation. Next week, we'll look at some common barriers for being desperate for God. But this morning, we're gonna look at an individual named Jacob in Genesis chapter 32 who models for us what it means and what it looks like to be desperate for God. And so Genesis chapter 32, just a bit of context for us as we dive in. We see Jacob waking up in verse 22 from a nap and he is really caught in between two burned bridges. Jacob is a man who lived on the run most of his life. In fact, Jacob's name means deceiver or uh, liar, and that pretty much sums up uh, his life. Which, by the way, I'm not really sure why you would name your baby deceiver. Like, that never really has resonated with me. Like, you know, people are meeting your son. Oh, he's so cute. What's his name? And, oh, his name's deceiver. (laughs) It's like, what? How does that make sense? But his name is deceiver or liar. And he kind of falls into that description throughout his entire life. He lived on the run really after he first tricked his older brother Esau out of his birthright. Now, birthright in this day was a a really big deal. This uh, this meant that you inherited two-thirds of your father's uh, wealth. And in this family line, this also meant that you received the blessing and the promise that their grandfather Abraham received from the Lord, the, the promise of the, uh, of the promised land, that the Messiah was gonna come through uh, their line. And Jacob tricked Esau, traded him for this birthright for a bowl of bean soup. Now, I, I'm not a huge bean soup guy. Like, if this was a cheesy gordita crunch from Taco Bell, like, that's when I'm all in, you know, for this birthright. But th- this just shows you how how deceiving Jacob was, how good he was at at tricking people. Of course, Esau finds out about this, and when he found out about this, he was really upset. He says, the next time that I see Jacob, my brother, I'm going to kill him. And so this causes Jacob to be on the run. Jacob finds himself in uh, his uncle's house named Laban, who eventually becomes his uh, father-in-law, really twice over, which is another story in and of itself but they have a rocky relationship at best. Both deceive each other, both trick each other. Jacob kind of steals some of Laban's livestock and he is on the run yet again. And we find in chapter 31, the chapter before ours this morning in verse three, that God begins to work on Jacob's heart. That God actually calls to Jacob and says, return to the land of your fathers and if you do, I promise to be with you 
forever. Now that promise was very attractive for Jacob who lived most of his life on the run. So he thinks to himself, okay, I'll go back to the land of my fathers. I'll have this family reunion. But he also knows that Esau is there. Now this is not the the family reunion that you want to go back to. You know, we all have the crazy uncles in our family. Most of you probably solved them as you were traveling this summer, but I'm pretty sure none of us have somebody in our family that literally wants to kill you. Okay, now Jacob has this, and this causes him to be terrified of Esau. And yet there's something about Jacob that he wants God in his life, that he's willing to take Esau head on because he wants this promise in chapter 31, verse three. Well, Jacob is afraid. He finds out that Esau has 400 armed men with him. And so the night before he meets up with Esau, we find Jacob in chapter 32 experienced something that changed the trajectory of his life, that he wrestles with God. As we move through this passage, I wanna point out three characteristics of what it means to view desperation as a gift, okay, three characteristics of someone who views desperation as a gift. Number one, Jacob models for us a consciousness of weakness, a consciousness of weakness. In verses 22 for, uh, through 23, Jacob leads his family and everything that they owned and they cross over a stream at night, which is really, really dangerous. We kind of take this for granted maybe, but remember, there are no signs in this day. There are no bridges. There are no lights. There are no GPS apps on smartphones at this time. This was almost suicidal to cross over a stream in the darkness of night. In fact, commentators are really confused about why Jacob did this during the night. Some believe that Jacob was just so paranoid uh, of meeting uh, his brother Esau that he starts to travel under the protection of nighttime. Jacob treads water with his kids, his wives, everything that they owned. Jacob was wet, he's exhausted, he's emotionally distressed, and he is fearful of his life. Jacob is at a weak moment in his life and he knows it. This is a, a low moment for Jacob. In fact, geographically, this is actually a low place. The ford of Jabbok was a steep ravine near the Dead Sea and the Jordan River. And yet this is not only a low place for him geographically, this is a low place for him physically and spiritually and emotionally. Jacob is in a place of desperation. That according to verse 24, the text tells us that Jacob was alone. Jacob was all by himself, no one to lean upon, no one to turn to when he has the most amazing experience of his life that changes the trajectory of his entire life. Don't miss that this morning. Jacob is alone when he experiences God like never before. Look, you need to know this morning that God will prearrange calculated and specific experiences in our lives where we feel like we're all alone, whether that's metaphorical or, uh, or physically, in order to bring us to our knees to remind us that God is God and we are not. That God will orchestrate circumstances and situations in our lives that seem absolutely brutal and yet are for our good because they untangle us from distraction, from busyness, where we can actually hear from God. 
Jacob is alone. He's alone with his regrets. He's alone with his life story. He's alone with his own fear and the unknown. And yet it is here that we learn that Jacob was alone, and yet he wasn't really alone. That God meets him in his aloneness and in his desperation. And let me just remind you this morning that this is often how God works in our lives. That God uses the the classroom of aloneness to teach us what it means to be desperate for God. And it's so often we miss it. So often we, we resist feeling alone with God. We feel sometimes too vulnerable with him. Have you ever been there before? Have you had a, a season of your life like the Ford of Jabbok, where you have come to the end of yourself, where you are confronted with your own weakness, where you've exhausted all of your resources? Look, if you've been there before, you know that you might feel like you're alone, and yet someone else is there with you, right? Someone else is teaching you. Someone else is working in your life. He's bringing about the wonderful purposes in the desperate moments of that season. See, being alone is often where God meets us, that God is actually attracted to weakness, that God can't resist those who humbly and honestly admit their desperate need for him. God meets us in our desperation. For it said before that God takes our adversity and turns it into a university. That God takes our pain, God takes our aloneness and teaches us what it means to crave him and to hunger for him as we should. And Jacob is learning this lesson here in this text. Well, in the later half of verse 24, we see Jacob wrestling with an unidentifiable person until the morning. Now, this wrestling match is tantalizingly obscure. Like, there are so many details. I'm sure as it was being read, you're like, man, I wanna know about this, I wanna know about that. And yet we don't know a lot about what takes place in this wrestling match. And yet we do know one thing, is that they wrestle until morning. Now, this was a real wrestling match. In the Hebrew, it, it, it talks about them kicking up dust because it's an all-out brawl. This was not a, a fake WWE kind of setup here. They are really fighting and wrestling with one another. And we learn in verse 30 that Jacob is fighting against God, that Jacob actually calls this place Peniel because it was here that he was face to face with God and lived. This is one of many theophanies in the Old Testament. A theophany is a manifestation of God that is tangible to human senses. Some believe this is even a Christophany, that this is the the pre-incarnate appearance of Christ that Jacob is actually uh, fighting against. And yet this wrestling match did not go as one might have predicted. If ESPN existed back then, this would have been the upset of the century. Like forget about Miracle on Ice, this would have been Miracle at Jabbok. This is a crazy encounter that Jacob has with God. Like the text talks about how like God could not prevail against Jacob. I, I don't know if you felt the tension in the text, like it almost suggests that God could not overcome Jacob. Now, surely it's not because God was too weak or Jacob was too strong. No, I I think God did to Jacob what I sometimes do with my girls as we wrestle. I've got two little girls, uh, ages four and one. They're super active. If you see them on Sunday morning running around, that's uh, that's them. You can usually hear Lila from a mile away. She's got that high-pitched shriek. 
And we wrestle a lot, and we love to wrestle. We love to be physical, and I'm trying to teach them what it means to be tough, to be strong. And what they do now is they actually double team me. They both come running at me, almost from opposite sides, and they just grab hold of my legs. And yeah, granted, at any moment, I could just pick them both up and the wrestling match would be over. And yet oftentimes what I do is I let them win. I let them run at me, tackle me on the ground, they're both on top of me, and I uh, claim that they are the winners. Now they win because I let them win, right? They win because I, I want them to be victorious. They win because I'm trying to build something into them. And look, this wrestling match between God and Jacob, Jacob doesn't win this wrestling match because God could not win, but God lets Jacob win. That Jacob prevails because God was trying to build something into Jacob, or, or more specifically, God was trying to take something out of Jacob. That God uses this encounter to show Jacob that weakness Coming to the end of yourself is the means by which desperation becomes a reality. See, being desperate for God is not about having it all together, but it's looking at your frailty, looking at your insufficiency, looking at your weakness in the face, coming to grips with that, owning it, receiving it, and allowing that to drive you to your knees in desperation for God. But desperation will never be viewed as a gift until we see weakness as an advantage. And that's what God was trying to teach Jacob in this wrestling match. Jacob is coming face to face with his own weakness. Secondly, the second characteristic of someone who views desperation as a gift, not only are they aware of their weakness, but secondly, they have a consuming hunger for God consuming hunger for God. Remember, this is a monumental time in the life of Jacob. This is when everything changed for him. In fact, the chapter before this, in chapter 31, verses 9 through 12, we see Jacob who is crying out to God, praying, begging God specifically to deliver him from Esau. Some commentators believe that Jacob was actually trying to pray all night when God taps him on the shoulder and said, let's go, let's wrestle. Jacob was desperate. He was hungry for God to intervene in his life. I'm sure if we talked to Jacob this morning and we asked him, hey, what did you learn in that wrestling match with God? I'm sure he would say something to the effect of, you know, I was, I was praying and asking God to intervene in my life and to deliver me from Esau. And yet what I learned in that wrestling match is that God did deliver me, but he didn't deliver me from Esau, he delivered me from myself. I'm sure Jacob would say something to the effect of, you know, I learned that Esau wasn't my biggest problem. Laban wasn't my biggest problem. My biggest problem wasn't my circumstance. My biggest problem was myself. See, it's something that we need to learn if we're gonna travel through this sermon series of being desperate for God and learning what that means it's not about uh, looking to our circumstances or trying to fix other people in our lives, but this growing hunger for God is established in our hearts when we are face to face with our own need for God and we start praying prayers like this, fix me, change me, not fix this person or change my situation. That's when your hunger for God and your desire for him starts to take off is when your prayer life, 
starts to grow and you start to see your need for God to intervene in your life. Look, we see Jacob's hunger for God even towards the end of this wrestling match. In verses 25 and 26, something really strange happens in the middle of this fight. God did not prevail over Jacob, and so instead he, he dislocates Jacob's hip. Or this could be translated as he, he numbs Jacob's hip so that Jacob now has a limp. Jacob comes face to face with weakness, maybe for the first time in his life. Look, this text uh, even goes on to, to talk about how God dislocated his hip. Jacob is limping. He can't really fight anymore. He, he can't really wrestle, and yet he's just holding on to God in this wrestling match. He's just clutching on to him because that's all that he can actually do in this moment. And look, church, this is a beautiful, a beautiful picture of what it means to be desperate for God, that Jacob in the midst of being filled with fear and exhaustion, being confronted with his own frailty and his own weakness is just clutching and clinging on to God. What a beautiful picture of what it means to be desperate for God. And look, I really believe that this is what God wanted Jacob to do all along, was just to hold on to him because there was nowhere else to turn, nowhere else to go. Like Jacob was used to being in control, was used to being self-sufficient. Jacob was the guy who didn't need anything from anybody else, and yet God was working. God was trying to wrestle out of Jacob his self-sufficiency and his focus on himself. God was making him desperate. God was instilling in Jacob a hunger for him. Look, does this describe your relationship with God this morning? When you think about this picture of Jacob just clinging onto God because he's all that he has, does that describe your prayer life? Do you have that type of desperation that you bring into your time with the Lord that, that Jacob even cries out to God? He says, I'm not gonna let you go until you bless me. Do you have that type of hunger with the Lord this morning? But to wrestle with God means that you, you open up the Bible and you're reading it, and you're studying it, but you're not settling for just going through the motions. You're not settling for more head knowledge, but you're, you're crying out to God, and you're saying, God, I'm not gonna walk away from your word until you make these words come alive to me in my heart. God, I want to be stirred. I want to be convicted. I want to be exhorted, and I'm not leaving until you meet me here and you bring the blessing that comes from being in your word and I'm gonna wrestle with you until you make it happen. Do you have that desperation for him when you open up this book that you anticipate God is going to meet me here and I'm not letting go until he does? Look, we learn here in this passage that we cannot settle for complacency. We cannot settle just to, open this up and just gather more facts, but we need to wrestle with the Lord as we study it and as we meet with him, wanting him to meet us there and give us the blessing that he promises. Look, are you, are you wrestling with the Lord today? Or are you wrestling against the Lord? There's a huge difference between the two. Or are you here this morning and you're, you're not wrestling at all? Maybe you're here this morning and just complacent, just going through the motions. Like that is the most dangerous place to be spiritually is to not 
wrestle, not care at all. Just to check the boxes and go on with your day. Call yourself a Christian, but there's no wrestling, there's no fight, there's no desperation for him. Look, if we don't feel desperate for God, we tend not to cry out to him. The more that we see our need for God, the more desperate we are for him, and that's demonstrated in this consuming hunger for God. The third characteristic that we see here in this passage, not only do we see an awareness of need, we see a consuming hunger, but thirdly, we see Jacob confess his sin before God. This is an important aspect that that we learn in being desperate for God. And in verse 27, God asked Jacob his name. Now God's not asking Jacob his name because he doesn't know it. God wants Jacob to admit his sin. See, Jacob says, my name is Jacob. In other words, my name is liar. My name is deceiver. The name Jacob is as much what he is as who he is that lying and deceiving have been the mechanisms by which Jacob was exerting and exercising his own self-sufficiency, that deceiving and lying were the means by which he stole Esau's birthright, that he stole the livestock and the wealth of Laban. And so God wants Jacob to own and to confess his sin because it was a barrier of being desperate for God. Now we'll spend Uh, more time on this next week, but I want you to begin thinking about this now. We know Jacob's barrier was lying and deceiving, but what is your barrier this morning in your own life from becoming more desperate for God? What is it for you that, that stands in between you and being desperate for the King of Kings to work in your life? Is it busyness? Is it unable to, to see your need for God on a daily basis? Is it a particular sin that you desire more than God? Like being desperate for God occurs when we start to make room for God in our lives by confessing and removing the sin so this hunger for God can have its rightful place in our hearts. And so we see Jacob has an awareness of weakness, a consuming hunger for God. He confesses his sin. And as a result, three things take place in Jacob's life. As a result of being desperate for God, number one, Jacob gets a new name in verse 28. Jacob gets a new blessing in verses 29 and 30. And Jacob gets a new limp in verses 31 and 32. That as a result of this wrestling match, God changes Jacob's identity, that Jacob is no longer known as liar and deceiver, He's no longer known as the one who who received the blessing and the birthright by deceiving, but he's known as Israel. He's known as the name that would be called God's people. He is now known as the one who fought with God and prevailed by faith. Look, sometimes the greatest blessing that comes through a season of wrestling with God is not a change in your situation. It's not a change in your circumstance, but it's a change in your identity. It's having a new purpose for your existence. See, for Jacob, he he didn't have a a resolution to his problem or to his issue with Esau. He still had to face him the next day in chapter 33. But what Jacob received was the blessing of a new type of depth and intimacy with the Lord that could not have come in any other way 
but wrestling with him. See, Jacob experienced the blessing and the reality that God was all that he needed and God was all that he wanted, and Jacob carried that reality with him wherever he went for the end of his days. Look, you'll never see desperation as a gift until you value communing with God over getting things from God. So God leaves Jacob, now Israel, with a limp. God leaves Israel, Jacob, with this unmistakable mark for the rest of his days. I'm sure when people saw Jacob limping around, they said something to the effect of, oh man, that limp is a handicap. That's a, it must be a huge inconvenience for Jacob. And yeah, I'm sure Jacob saw it as a blessing. I'm sure people looked at that limp and said, man, that must slow him down. That must get in the way of what he really wants to do in life. And yet Jacob probably saw this limp as a constant reminder of the type of desperation he is to have every single day of his life, not just in the trials. Look, if you've had a, a season of wrestling with God, if you've had a Ford of Jabbok moments, you have this spiritual limp that you carry, you know that that limp is a gift. You know that that experience, that, that reminder of your weakness, that reminder of your insufficiency drives you towards being desperate for God every single day of your life, not just during trials. That limp is a reminder that you've encountered the living God and he's changed you and he's changed you forever. So we learn from Jacob's life that this idea of being desperate for God, it starts with wanting God. It's declaring that God is all that I want and all that I need. And church, I can't wait to see what God teaches us for the rest of this sermon series. We're about to embark on a year and a half study through the gospel of John in September. Year and a half, we're gonna crawl through that thing. And I am so desperate for God to speak to us. Like I want God to blow us away every single week with what he shows us in the text. And I, I'm praying that this sermon series that God does something to our hearts and to our posture towards God's word as we meet every single week. We've got a few minutes left. Can I show you one more thing in the text that just blew me away? This, this thing I saw, I, it warmed my heart. I've never uh, seen this before, studying this passage, that you actually see this passage point forward to Jesus. This is awesome. This really, really blessed me this week, that just as Jacob Catch this, just as Jacob was holding on to God as he was wrestling with him at the risk of his own life, I mean, God could have crushed him at any moment. He's holding on to God at the risk of his own life in order to receive a blessing. Jesus, in a similar but greater way, held on to the cross at the cost of his own life in order to receive the blessing for us all. See, Jacob's example here is just a small picture of what Jesus came to later do on the cross. You could say that Jesus is the greater Jacob, that as God cared enough to come down to wrestle with Jacob, God, maybe in a greater way, cared for us by sending Jesus down to wrestle with our sin on the cross, to die in the place of sinners so that we might receive the blessing of eternal life. Are you here this morning, you're wrestling with God? Are you maybe running from God? Did you just see that Jesus came and he, he had the ultimate wrestling match with sin and defeated sin once and for all so that you could be forgiven? 
But God came in Jesus, not just to be the God of Abraham, not just the God of Isaac, not just the God of Jacob and Israel, but he wants to be the God of your life. And all you have to do is come to him with your need, come to him by faith to believe in him and to turn from your sins. As we close this morning, I just want to give us a a couple of minutes, just a time to reflect and to respond before we sing. Band's going to come. We'll have just keys playing underneath this moment. Just want you to focus on how it is that you want to maximize this sermon series before we start the Gospel of John in September. Let me give you three possible ways that you can maximize this sermon series. Just write these down and just think about these things. Maybe ask the Lord to to pick one of these three to do something in your own heart this morning. But three ways to maximize this sermon series. Number one, pray and prepare for Sundays. Pray and prepare for Sundays. God can move, God can speak every day, every moment of the day, but there is something unique that happens when we gather as God's people and we hear from him. So can I just encourage you this morning to, to come to church early, to sit and to pray and to say, God, speak to me today. God, move in me today. That your desperation it can be seen in really what time you show up at church on Sundays. And so maybe to push that alarm clock a little bit earlier and come, because you don't want to miss what God has for you uh, on Sundays. And so pray and prepare for Sundays. Secondly, give up one thing this month. Uh, you can call this fasting, but fast one thing and use that time to spend with the Lord this month. It can be something big, it can be something small. Uh, you might guess I might be giving up Taco Bell this month just to spend with the Lord. No, I'm just kidding, I, don't, I really don't eat it that much, okay? Maybe once or twice a week. Um, so pick one thing and just say, you know what, Lord, I'm gonna, instead of doing this, instead of social media, instead of this or that, I'm gonna spend just my time with you in this moment. So fast one thing, and then last, wrestle with God daily, okay? Challenge yourself to pray just a simple prayer, just to cry out to the Lord every single day to say, God, give me more of you and wrestle out of my life anything that's standing in between us. Just a simple prayer. God, give me more of you. Wrestle out of me anything that's standing in between me and you. Just a simple prayer to pray over the next 30 days. Okay, give you a couple minutes just to reflect, to respond Benediction this morning. I should leave these word, leave this place with these words commissioning you out. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Have a great day, College Park.